This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman. Welcome back to What Matters Most. I'm recording this from Barcelona, Spain. It's an international edition, but my guest is back in my adopted city, Nashville, Tennessee. She ran for state senator and she won. She's making a huge impact. It's one of my favorite people. And she promised because she was on before that if she won, she'd come back. She's keeping a campaign promise. Look at that. What an honor to welcome back state senator, Miss Charlene Oliver. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Paul. It's good to be back. Hey, what did it feel like when you realized you actually won? Oh my gosh. So I am, I'm a former athlete. So you can't tell now by looking at my body and, you know, uh, three kids later, but I was a triple athlete when I was uh, in school. And so I played sports all year round, had a banging body. I played basketball, softball, and volleyball and captain of every team. I was real good in every sport. And so I am very competitive. Um, which people may not realize. And so I always had that competitive spirit going into the campaign and throughout. But when I was, when I learned that I was losing on election day, um, I wasn't watching television. I purposely did not turn on any polls or results. I was at home with my family, just waiting on to go to my watch party and I was probably a little overly confident in myself. And so when I got that phone call uh, from my campaign manager, Christian Bugs, and she was like, you, you know, you're down in the polls right now. And she wouldn't tell me how much, but she was like, you know, Jerry's up. And, um, and I was like, damn, really? And so... By the time I had arrived to my watch party, I said, let's just, let's just go. Let's just, you know, I was trying to prepare myself for what might happen. And then something happened and the, the numbers started to shift. Like within an hour, I came back and literally it was a whole 1200 point swing. I was down by like 600 votes when early vote, when the early vote count came in. So Usually when you get those early vote numbers, that's like the definite sign. It, it's really kind of heard of to win based off election day numbers. But when those election day numbers started coming in, I went from losing by 600 points to now winning by over 605 votes. And so I, there was a 1200 point swing just from uh, people coming out on election day and when I found out that I want, like, they were like, you're up. He can't come back from this. You are going to win. I like, I, I just remember throwing my cup <laughs> that I had in my hand. It was like that, like, I'm up to bat and I, you know, I play softball. So this is an analogy, but I'm up to bat and it's like the ninth inning 
and we're down by like one point and it's two outs and I'm up to bat and I hit like a line drive to the outfield and I'm rounding the bases, coming around third and I slide into home and they're like, you're safe. And we win the game. That's what it felt like. Like we came back from behind. We did that and we won. Like it just felt so like exhilarating to be vindicated a little bit. Like, yeah, I did that when no one thought I would. When people underestimated, even people closest to me underestimated me. I proved everyone wrong. Walk off homer. You hit a clut you hit a step back three at the buzzer to win game seven. All the above. <laughs> so if you go to my Instagram, I have it tagged, I have it pinned. Um I made this real of just all this sheer emotion that I was feeling that day. I cried and cried and cried. I hugged everybody like I just won a lottery or something. You would just wouldn't have thought I ever never won anything. I was so happy, but it meant so much in that moment, a lot of things, you know, for me personally, it meant that don't ever, don't ever doubt yourself, Charlene because there's nothing you have to prove to anyone else anymore. For my community, it just meant that someone who didn't have all the prerequisites finally won, finally got, we got to win, finally, in the face of, we always feel like we're losing here in Tennessee. We're in a losing battle, and we finally got one of us. And that's what I heard a lot after I... um won my Senate race before I got sworn in. I would, you know, see people in the community. It's like, man, I'm just so proud of you. And the thing that I hear heard the most is like, man, you one of us. Like that is what I take with me. It's like that was the moment when I found out that I won. It's like one of us won. Someone who gets it, someone who's fighting for us. And so that is what I continue to take with me. And what I remember is that People need to see themselves in this process. And I am a walking embodiment of that. And um, I don't hold that responsibility lightly. And you won because you worked your tail off. You didn't win because they drew a lucky number. And you won despite kind of the deck being stacked against you. Man, so this was an epic win to win. And what a what a validation of the hard work. And for people that don't know, because we have listeners all over the world, Tennessee is a very backwards place. I mean, it makes the Handmaid's Tale look like a progressive place. <laughs> for you to win, it's mind blowing. But I had a feeling you would because I felt like you felt like I feel like you're on a mission. You're inspired. And you're very clear. You're not just kind of bumbling forward. You're very clear and focused. Absolutely, I have been very laser focused since I've entered the work of activism of who's my enemy and what am I fighting against and how the change happens. And it's always been about the policy change for me. It's always been about how do I change the systems and get to the root causes of the problem. And so I, I'm always moving with a very like sniper-like focus for me. And so when the seat came open, it was like, this the opportunity, like there's no one else that can do this. Write the policy yourself, Charlene. Stop re relying on the people who are sold out and bought. Do it yourself. And so that, I just walked right into that path. And um, I've been doing that since 
you know, uh, I learned of the death of Trayvon Martin. That That is what propelled me into this work. My kids and always keeping them at the forefront of like the, the future is what we're progressing forward to. And I want my kids in a future that doesn't see them as a threat, that doesn't um, hold them behind because they're a woman or because they're black. Like I want to, them to live in a world that is compassionate and loving and fair, like it doesn't, um, you know, have all the barriers in front of them. And so um, that that's what propels me. And I've been doing that, whether it was through the Equity Alliance. These are all for me, sort of the means to an end, um, so to speak, um, um, whether it was starting the Equity Alliance or figuring out like, I need to go work on some campaigns. I need to go start a pack. Uh, to get other people elected because we got to sprinkle the allies and put them in position, um, whether it was uh, going to work for Congressman Jim Cooper and learning the game and from the top Democrat in the state for the past 20 years um, and getting that congressional federal experience, policy experience. Um, and so... I, I take a lot of these things with me to the state Senate, these experiences, these lived experiences that I have. And that is, that's what is helping me tell the story of my constituents. Trayvon Martin was murdered by George Zimmerman, just another person who was killed for being black, black walking home from the uh, convenience store with Skittles. When that happened, that obviously struck something in you that started this. You just mentioned it. Can you talk about what that spark was and why? It's it's very important to understand where I was uh, mentally. Um, I was 30 years old, just turned 30, and I just moved back to Nashville from Knoxville. And I had a nine-month-old daughter, and we didn't have a lot of money in the bank, but we moved on a leap of faith because I wanted to come back to Nashville, close to the family, close to my husband's family. And... I had been just graduated from graduate school working from a nonprofit in Knoxville. And I was just kind of bouncing around with no focus. I knew I wanted to work in the nonprofit industry. I knew that the nonprofit industry was the vehicle that helped me help people, but I didn't quite know what I was good at. And so I was also reeling with the fact that I just realized uh, for the first time that I had been um, in a relationship previously when I was in high school with the sexual predator. And at the time, yes, at the time, I didn't think anything was wrong with that. I didn't think that that was going to have a later effect on me in life until someone else, my, one of my, my husband and other folks helped me understand, like, that's actually what happened to you, Charlene. And so it, I was just walking through life aimlessly until I turned 30 and it like a light bulb clicked. Like I literally was at work having an aha moment asking God, like, what am I good at? Help me understand, like help me discover what my purpose is. And I discovered one that I needed healing from some previous relationships, but I also uh, realized what I was good at and that was PR communications. And so I went on this track of 
you know, diving into a career field that le- that was not in communications, but also stayed in the com- nonprofit government realm. So I pursued that. And um, that's where I was at the time. I was in this like self-discovery reflection mode. And so when Trayvon Martin was murdered, it happened um, two days after my son, Elijah, was born. He was born. Yeah, he Elijah was born on February 24th, 2012, and Trayvon was murdered two days later. And so I, that struck me because I have three kids and Elijah's my second child, but my first son, first born son. And so now I'm I'm paying attention because I'm tuned into this self-healing thing that's going on in me. This I'm reflecting, but then I'm paying attention to the news and I'm like, I'm about to be a mother to a black boy and he was he looks like the boy that was just murdered and I'm like how does that happen how does George Zimmerman like walk free in a country that's supposed to be of justice like you know what I'm saying like why and I'm so I'm really trying to reconcile that in myself like how do I protect my son from that I don't want him to die early, an early death. And so that scared the shit out of me. I, I, I was compelled. And so when you couple that, I just started asking questions with like, okay, so what do I do with all this? Do I go to law school? Do I become a civil rights attorney so that I can defend the Trayvon Martins of the world? Do I like work in politics or run for office. Like I was just like, I don't know what to do. I I never came from a a family of politics or activism. And the things started happening over and over again in terms of Black Lives Matter started uprising Ferguson. And I kept seeing black men and boys dying at the hands of police. Like I cannot let this be our reality. I have to I felt like I had to do something to the point where I starting to like get antsy. Like I wanted to go to Ferguson in protest, but I had a newborn baby at the house. I couldn't just up and drop everything. So I had two kids under two (laughs) in diapers. Um, And so that is, that's where I was in that moment uh, of soul searching. And that soul searching um, and asking God to heal me. I remember praying to God, God heal me. And I kept hearing his voice saying, tell your story. Just tell your story. That three words that I kept hearing in my head is tell your story. I don't know what that meant at the time. I really didn't. I just kept following that tell your story thing. And um, I now know what it means. (laughs) I now know because here I am telling my story. Um, And every time I do, it helps somebody. It brings someone closer either to, to God or to the work of, of justice. And so um, that's what I did. I just kept following that voice to t- tell my story. And it led me to working in politics. I wanted to get my feet wet. And that is when I worked on Christian Books school board campaign, thinking that school board was like, okay, this is easy. This like, it's just school board. It's not like a presidential race. Um, let me just let me just dip my toe in and see, not knowing that Nashville was a hub for 
the charter school movement and how politicized that was. So I was I was trial by fire at that point. And um, with her race, she she faced some of the same similar obstacles that I did um, with people telling her not to run. She was too young and she didn't have the money to raise and, and go against the charter movement machine. And so I saw it firsthand in her race. And I was her communications director honing those skills. And um, that is what opened my eyes to what was wrong with Nashville politics. And I wanted to change that. And that's what led me to start the Equity Alliance. And the rest is history. I won't go into all of it, but that is that is the propeller. <laughs> it was the, the catalyst that that really pushed me into something deeper. It's hard enough to be a mom or a dad and worry about your children. We don't have to pretend it's any any easier if you or skin is dark, and especially if you're a male in our society. Every statistic we read about it every day. How do you live with that? Just as a mom, forget being a state senator or anything. How does how does a mom have to? You had to make peace with it that you're and both your children are out there in the world and that not only is there the normal threat, but actually all kinds of other threats could take their life. And any it could be, it could be somebody in the playground, Tamir Rice, right? 10 years old, playing, boom, dead in eight seconds. We see it every day. How do you find a place for that as you move through the world? I, I can't do this work without being connected to the source. That That is, that's the comfort that I, and peace that I rest in is that, I know that I'm on divine assignment and there is covering over my life and over my family's life. Um, and so I pray over my kids. I anoint their head and I say, God, protect them. Um, but I'm not naive. I don't put them out there. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't, um, right. <laughs> like faith is dead. Don't be stupid. And so I'm just, <laughs> you know, so there's only so much that I, I let my kids see or let people see of my kids, if that makes sense. I got to keep something for myself. But I'm still navigating. I'm still navigating motherhood and teenager drama. And my son, um, you know, he's um, he has his behavioral challenges. And so I, I'm still having to wrestle with where he goes to school and having to challenge um, his white teachers to treat him equally. Like, like I'm still seeing it happen in real time and still trying to fight against the biases. He's a big boy. My, my son is 13. Well, he's 11, but he looks like he's 13 or 14. He's in the 98th percentile for his height and weight. <laughs> and so um, he's, he doesn't, he's never given the benefit of the doubt to be youthful because of his size. And so I'm just sitting back like in anxiety, like, oh God, I know he's about to, he's going to turn a teenager at some point. And I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm having to figure it out. And so um, because of his behavior at school, I've, I've had to switch his schools. And so those are just the things that come with parenthood and motherhood of you got to do what's best for your kid, um, which is why I, I hate this whole like, charter school public education fight because the the voice of the parent and the child gets so lost in it that we forget that parents are just trying to 
give them the best thing that they never had. <laughs> um, and, you know, if that means I got to give the last on my back so that my child can have, then that means he might just have to go to a charter school or he might just have to go to a school across town. Uh, you know, people aren't thinking about the political side when they're trying to make a choice for their child. So that's a whole nother topic, but those are still things we're navigating on top of being a state senator here in Oliver House. <laughs> What's been the biggest surprise in your first uh, days there, weeks and months? Oh, mm -hmm. don't hold back. I, I don't think I fully have fully decompressed and processed what I just went through, um, what it meant. I'm not sure I have the words yet to describe what, like I need somebody to pinch me a little bit <laughs> um, because I think about, I think about Dr. King, I think about Congressman Jim Lewis and Ella Baker and Satima Clark and, you know, all of these, Fannie Lou Hamer, did they realize back then what they were doing would be studied in history books, that their faces would be plastered in museums? Did they realize what they were doing or were they just trying to survive? And I don't know. I, I would love to like pick their brains and go back and understand how they got up every morning and faced what seemed like the impossible, what seemed like war um, in the face of lynching, in the face of dog hoses. And we don't have that same threat today, but it looks a little different. And so I just wonder, is that what my kids are going to be reading about? Um, will my face be in a museum somewhere 100 years from now? I don't know. I don't know. I'm just surviving and trying to live and trying to make sure my kids don't die at the age of 16. You know, it's like, and so I got to do what I got to do. And if that means run for state senate, <laughs> that's what I'm going to do. And if that means I'm going to be one of the few to push back in that building and not give in to the pressure to conform, because there is a real pressure to conform. Um, you know, you're told that this is how we do things in the Senate. Um, we have there's these rules that are on paper in a book. Um, we call it Mason's rules of order, but then the unspoken rules is what we're governed by. It's the, you know, you don't put, you don't put an amendment on another sponsor's bill in committee. <laughs> you just don't do that without asking them. But I did it. And I did it on when they were trying to take over our airport in Nashville. And I did it because, oh, and I was told, what did he say? It's, it's, it's on, on, oh, I can't remember what he said. It's unfriendly or, ah, oh, I can't remember the word he used, but I put it back on him. <laughs> oh, it's going to come back to me, but 
you know, I was just like, I'm, if we're going to take over the airport, let's take over everybody airport and apply to everybody in Tennessee. <laughs> and that sent them in a scurry. Um, you know, it's like they tell you don't, you know, it's okay to talk about the issues, but just don't name the the senator on social media. Just don't call them out by name. It's stuff like that. Or <laughs> trying to think of other things. But you know, there's these these rules that 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 they govern themselves by. And I don't particularly subscribe to it. The the respectability politics of it all, that we're cordial, where we we hold ourselves to a higher standard and we don't we don't do that here. Uh, I can't get down with it because I feel like the rules were meant to keep us out. I don't know if I'm making any sense, but that that it it is it, there's this grooming that happens. Like even like all of them, Republican and Democrat. When I was told that you know the House is very different uh, than the Senate when I came in, the House operates like a boys' locker room, high school boys' locker room. They're wild over there. And then the Senate is like the retirement home. That is the analogy that. And when I say that it has held itself to a true, <laughs> that has found itself to be true, as you can see. Um, the Senate, I think I lowered the average age <laughs> in half when I came in. <laughs> There'd be senators back there asleep in <laughs> committee. Like, um, and so, it's it's an interesting place. It really is symbolic of, I feel like I just went into a twilight zone and I'm just now coming back out to reality. Um, the metaphor of the Cordell Hole building, you've been in there, but I can't get over how the only windows in that place are the two windows in your in your office. There are no other windows in that building except when you walk into a senator's office or a legislator's office. Think about that. There are no Absolutely. Absolutely. If I'm walking down the long hallway, I can't see the outside world. When I'm in the Senate chambers, there are no windows. Like there is no light, like it's dim and dark. You don't know if it's raining outside. And so symbolically, to me, that feels like that's by design. Like we can't be connected to the outside world. And um, and in, in reality, a lot of them are not. <laughs> the way they think is not connected to the outside world, the real experiences of what people in Tennessee are facing. I mean, let's just take this gun violence for example. I'm just, it just baffles me how out of touch um, these Republican legislators are with their own voters. I mean, I talked to suburban moms who were like, we need gun legislation yesterday. Like, I don't want my kids having to go to school with armed guards, you know? So, um it's it's an interesting place so i don't i don't know if I have a, no i just you, you asked me um 
what's it been like? Um, it, it's it's like trying to avoid the landmines uh, and just making it through another day. It's like, don't have a scandal. Don't say too much on social media. Or Lord, I got called to the principal's office. So this is what I'm talking about. Like the day after the shooting, after the Covenant School shooting, well, excuse me, the day of that it happened. It happened at like 10, 10, 15 in the morning. So by the we it happened on a Monday. On Mondays, we have session, floor session at four o'clock. And so speaker sent out an email telling folks that we were not going to do any business. And, but we were told, um, you know, through other channels that we would do the prayer and basically have a moment of silence. And then we would adjourn. That particular day, I was I was running late, but I had to use the bathroom. <laughs> and so running through the tunnel to get to the bell is ringing, but I, ha I had to go to the restroom. So I didn't go in first. I went to the restroom. And by the time I got out the restroom, they had already shut the doors and they started on time. We never start on like right at four o'clock. <laughs> but that day there was like this urgency to get out of there. But they started right at four and the sergeant arms shut the door. So I had to wait and watch them do the prayer from outside the chambers. And we did the Pledge of Allegiance and then they opened the doors. By the time I opened the doors, I was running to hit my button for roll call. And then the next time I'm speaker, uh, Leader Johnson is like, I motion to adjourn. And so me, Heidi, uh, Senator Campbell from Nashville and Senator Jeff Yarbrough from Nashville are all standing up because we're waiting to be acknowledged so that we can speak about what just happened that day as legislators from Davidson County. And so when he adjourned and they motioned and we like, he gaveled us out. We're literally all, all six Democrats are like standing there dumbfounded. Like, so we're not going to do a moment of like, what happened? What just, what are we doing? So I was like, Pips, like, how can we just not do a moment of silence? At least do a moment of silence. So I got on Twitter and was like, we just adjourned without doing a moment of silence. And so we impromptu do this press conference um, in the legislative lounge across from the chambers. All the six Democrats do a press conference. And by that time during that day, I was holding back the tears. Like I was trying to hold it together, but still thinking about Sandy Hook. I was still thinking about my own kids. And like, I just can't imagine like a nine-year-old being blown away by AR-15. And like, it was just, so by the time I, I didn't want to speak at the press conference, but they were like, you got to say something. And, and I just lost it, like started bawling. And I don't remember everything I said, but apparently I called the Republicans cowards. Um, and that one little word out of everything I said, out of everything everyone said, that one little word coward got me called to the, to the principal's office the next day. Speaker Renally would like to see you. And so <laughs> I didn't know what it was about. So I go in there and I'm the only one in there. And there's like three other, um, his, you know, his people, three other guys. And so I'm like, what is this like intimidation? So I just was told that 
Um, I had said something on social, on press conference that didn't sit well with him. And he was basically like, don't call all of us cowards. Don't lump us all together and um, all this and that. And I'm just looking like, so this what we this what you want to tell me about? <laughs> like, I'm, I'm just like, this what we... And so this is the only, first and only time, well, actually the second time I've had a one-on-one with Speak Finale. And so it just kind of caught me off guard a little bit that this was the thing. And so I just, I told him, I said, you know, speaking this is the third mass shooting in Nashville, um, in case you forgot. And emotions are running high and our constituents are asking us to do something we didn't do a moment of silence yesterday i said so are you planning to do a moment of silence at some point because that's the least we could do so um and he just said you know it's okay to he gave me that spiel again about don't calling out on social media and i'm just like so i'm thinking back in my head as i'm listening to talk like so you policing my, my social media now like excuse me um and I said, you know, it's just unfortunate that you care more about decorum than what just happened. I don't know if he was expecting an apology or what, but I didn't give him one, unfortunately. I didn't give, I wasn't about to apologize for calling you cowards because here we are a month out from adjourning legislation and there is no gun legislation that we passed that would help people or save people's lives. And there's no special session that has been scheduled. So you can you can read between the lines and make your own uh, assessment of that situation and who they are. I'm glad you stood up. I read all about that from afar and they are cowards. And what shocked me is they care more about what you said than dead kids. How, how do they not care at all? What happened to these people, these old gentrified white fossils <laughs> that don't fucking care about the lives of these little kids or any lives? They don't care. How do you lose your humanity like that? That's a really great question. When you spend so much time de dehumanizing everyone else, gays, Black people, immigrants, um, women, you become desensitized. You have become desensitized and you care more about getting reelected and feeling good about yourself and being the legislator from whatever real county fill in the blank because you're somebody. Like you care about getting reelected than you do about actually remembering who you're there for. <laughs> You're, you are owned. You are owned by the people who are paying uh, and putting money in your campaign coffers. That's precisely why I took a pledge not to accept corporate PAC money for that reason. I didn't want to be beholden or chained to a desk and be told how to vote. So it's just really unfortunate that these, these, these grown men have no backbone. I had epiphany just now when you said that if you spend your life trying to strip others of your, their humanity in the process, you lose your own. You absolutely do. This, I mean, how else can you justify? <laughs> how do you justify going home, sleeping at night? I, I That is one thing I have has constantly went through my head as I sit on the Senate floor and I continue to press no 
on these horrible policies that we pass, how do they go go home at night and be okay with this? Do they not know the consequences that they're about to impart on Tennesseans? I'm pretty sure they do. I'm like, they gotta know. That's why they're doing it. They gotta know. This isn't ignorance. This is intentional. I'd want to check the pharmaceutical cabinet and also how much alcohol is consumed and whatever else. What is America's gun problem? It's not just Nashville. I'm in Barcelona. I've been in Europe a month. They don't have shootings here. You're safe at night. I have female friends who live here and in Portugal. They walk around at night and they feel safe. People of color here, it doesn't matter. I'm sure people are prejudiced. But overall, it just seems like a different place. But there's no shootings. And when I'm over here, I just read about two or three a day, five here in Atlanta, seven here, 10 over here, co-worker. And the people here ask me, like, we don't understand. It seems insane. And I said, I have no answers for you because it is insane. It is insane. What What is going on? Tough question, I know. There's no soundbite answer to that. No one, there's too many guns, I could tell you that. And there's not enough laws. And they want to have more people, more guns, less laws. That's freedom. Now, you're not free to go to school. You could get killed or you can't go anywhere. You might get killed. You don't have that kind of freedom. You can't read certain books. Books are dangerous. <laughs> Students are dangerous. Drag hmm. queens are dangerous. But AK whatever is no, or maybe bazookas. And it's like a lunatic asylum. One of the things that the left does not do well is talk to, talk about the intersectionality of all these issues that we face. Uh, how gun violence is connected to reproductive freedom. And reproductive freedom is connected to health care. And health care is connected to... Uh, you know, economics and job and employability, because if you don't have a job and give you health care, then um, how do you afford a house and shelter? Like, it's all connected. <laughs> and I feel like when you keep drilling down through the intersectionality, you're going to find yourself at the intersection of race and white supremacy, always. But the gun, the gun problem is also driven by fear. And that fear of the other, particularly fear of black people, because what we what we're not talking about is the origin of gun rights. <laughs> the origins of why did landowners need guns in the first place? It's to keep the slaves in control. It's to prevent them from slave revolting. That's where the guns come from. And so we need to keep our guns in case there's another civil war so that we can justify slaughtering all the Black people off the face of the earth. Well, the NRA and the Ku Klux Klan started when the Civil War ended. Call that a coincidence. It's all white supremacy. Once you see it, when I finally, and it's harder for me, I want to say it's harder to see if you're white because you don't, you're not as affected by it negatively. If you're a person of color, you don't need to go to any classes. You live it. But once I became aware of it, and obviously not to the degree of someone who's been persecuted by it, it was like I put on glasses and it literally it makes me want to cry. It was everywhere in everything. 
from before the country even existed until this very moment. You see it in everything. Who gets prosecuted? Who walks free? Who can commit a crime on TV and nothing happens? And somebody else can have a backpack they didn't even steal and they can die in prison three years later without bail? Where you could buy a house where you can't buy a house, what your houses work, what you get paid, where you can get hired, where you can't get hired. School, everything, everything is white supremacy. Redlining, where they put the inner state is white supremacy. It's everything, and we don't want to deal with it. See, because we elected a black man president, we healed everything. Wasn't well, that miraculous? We do not want to heal it, and we refuse to. And I think it'll be the end of everything, because if symptomatically you didn't want to deal with the cancer, you could get by for a while, but eventually the cancer will kill you. The denial will not win. It's just the way it is. I'd say the same about climate change. You can't, yeah, you can't lie yourself out of reality. Short time you can. You can run up the credit cards, but it won't work. We're reaching that point of we are about to max out on our credit cards and the cancer is running rampant. We have, and I, and I, I don't want to say we, but uh, the people in power have manufactured so many crises because of failed policies, trickle down economics don't work, <laughs> you know, like that we are, we're reaching that breaking point and people are breaking mentally. Like we're, we don't talk enough about how the coronavirus pandemic and the toll that it took on people and coming out of that in the mental health crisis that we're in, that people are still dealing with with that isolation and losing loved ones and having to work two or three jobs uh, and burnout because um, over a million people died and and there's no one to fill those jobs. <laughs> like, like all of it's coming to a head and um, the wrong people are in leadership to handle it. I agree. And the sociopathic element has just kind of captured the system from the Supreme Court everywhere else. And the media and the narrative. It's easier to see when you're up here. It's funny. It's like you got to stand outside the matrix and just look at it and go, oh, it's all bullshit. And the trickle down and the men in suits, the serious suits that tell you, you know, what we can and can't do. We can't help people. Can't have universal health care. It's almost like it's beyond physics. But yet you go to Europe and it's almost like, oh, everyone has it. So what are, what are you talking about? We can't solve the shootings, but you go in every other civilized country, they don't have it. And one thing after another, and if we deny the climate crisis, it's crazy. It's, it's yeah. And to be as smart as you are, it's hard, isn't it? Isn't it hard to have all your awareness? Absolutely. And see it all and just you're on the Titanic with me and we're, we're yelling about icebergs and we're whispering about icebergs and they think we're crazy, but we know what's coming. Yeah. And it's like, you can't, you can't stop the train. It, it is absolutely maddening to see all the, the interconnected crises and what's happening and feeling a little bit powerless to change it. Cause you know, one person can't, can't do it. And you're trying to get as many people behind you to fit, to like see it. And thank God the Tennessee three helped pull the wool over people's eyes and snap them out of the matrix for a little bit to see it. 
um, to see what's going on. Um, thankfully, like it's like thank you for for that. We needed that moment to 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 shine the light. But then I get anxious again because I'm like, nothing still happened. Nothing still changed. We don't have legislation. These assholes are still in power. What do we do? How are we going to get them out? What's the plan? I need some more people behind us. Oh, I'm an elected official now. I'm not an activist anymore. I can't just go out here and, you know, like it's uh, trying to figure it out. Trying to figure out where my place is now that I'm on the other side. <laughs> um it's it's a little it's a little maddening. I was shocked you didn't get expelled. I swear I thought, oh, that all right, those three, all right, who else? It's going to be you. Somehow you weren't expelled. Tell the world about the Tennessee three because maybe not everybody knows about what happened. That that was something because it's completely undemocratic. I'm kind of surprised they got back in. To be honest with you, we would be talking about the Tennessee four at this point if I were in the house. Like that's the reality of it is that um you know they're all they're all in the, the house chamber. So again, like I said, boys locker room, retirement home. So when all this was happening, <laughs> I'm in the Senate, they're in the house. And so we operate totally separate from each other, even though we're the Tennessee General Assembly, they have their way of of doing things and their rules and the times that they meet and uh and when we have ours and so because i'm in the senate i was in i was in my chamber across the hallway when all of that was going down so you have to understand that particular day it was three days after the mass shooting it was the first protest that uh, was slated to happen at the capitol and so we were all there um, in the morning, greeting protesters. I was walking back and forth. It was a lot of hustle and bustle. I was walking in and out of the chambers to go, you know, protest with the folks. And um, Justin was there. Heidi was there. Jeff, uh, Ramesh, all of us were in the middle of the protest. And uh, the bell rang. We went in. And a little time, sometime after, Justin, Representative Justin Jones, comes into my chamber and, you know, gets escorted by the sergeant at arms to my desk. And he whispers in my ear. And, and, and up until this point, like, I was Justin's, like, person. Like, you got to understand, us coming into the legislature as freshmen together, we ran together, our districts overlap. Um, we had this, like, lock arms kind of like good trouble caucus thing going on where um we knew that there weren't a lot of people we could trust up there and thankfully i was in the senate and he's in the house because we ran a lot of bills together no one was sponsoring his bills no one wanted to help sponsor his bills and so i was his like senate side um co-conspirator right <clears throat> And so he would come in my office a lot. We would shoot the shit. I would go to his office. We, you know, we had this little camaraderie going. And so up until that point, he he came up to my desk and he was like, man, they just kicked me out of the chambers because I'm wearing my pe this pen. And he points to this pen on his lapel and it's a AR-15. It's a button with the AR-15 on it and a line, a red line through it. Basically, it's a band AR-15. 
And so up until this point, there has been this tension building throughout the session. People know who Representative Justin Jones is. Prior to that, he was activist Justin Jones, who got arrested 14 times, who led the protest to remove the Nathan Bedford Forest from the bust, who led um, the the um, subsequent protest that because they camped out on the legislative plazas for, for 62 days, they passed a law in retaliation to ban protests. And so he led that and um, he got accused of throwing something on uh, that speak house speaker in the elevator and got banned from the Capitol. They, you know, like there was already this reputation that preceded him, that he was already a thorn in their side, right? So to now be representative Justin Jones, they can't ban him from the Capitol. They can't keep him out. And so there was there was this effort to never recognize him as as their equal. And um, whether it was never not calling on him on the House floor, not recognizing him in, in committee, uh, all these things that they were doing. And it and Justin got smarter as the session went on. Like he started learning the rules and started operating when the rule. And that's really what ticked him off is like, dang, he he's starting to play within the system and we still can't get him. Like, you know. So that day, it was almost like when he did that floor protest, it was like they were like, got him. They was just waiting on that opportunity to like figure out that moment when to find that reason to to get him out. So they went straight from <laughs> they went straight to the expulsion. So it was really about I hate to say this, but it was really about Representative Justin Jones. Um, he was he was probably is the more powerful one i'll use that word lightly in that scenario i mean representative gloria johnson prior to us getting in the legislature was the one that got picked on right they put her in the closet she was the vocal one the outspoken one they they did her wrong so this is not new tactics they just found a new person to pick on right so that day in my chamber and, you know, I was like, they can't ban you for that because the rules were not applying fairly and equally. You got to remember prior to this, the Black Caucus called for Representative Cheryl to be stripped from his committees because he, you know, had a comment of hanging by a tree as a method of capital punishment on a bill. And so the rules, unfortunately, didn't apply to him to be expelled for that. Um, there is another Senator that wears a Confederate flag tie a lot. <laughs> he's never removed from the, you know, he's never asked to leave. They wear AR-15 pins all the time. No one ever asked the white legislators to take it off. So it was, this double standard going on so i'm just like why are they telling you to take that off you can't, you can't take that off it's, a, it's your first amendment right you know and so he's like he moves it over and he goes back over to the chamber and shortly after that i am 
I go back outside to the protest to just, again, go say hi. Like, meanwhile, we're listening in the chambers and they're loud. They get, they're getting progressively louder. You can't even speak on the microphone. They're drowning us out in the chambers. Like, it's, it, it's music to my ears. I'm like, yes, like, y'all better do that. Y'all better let them know you hear. Like, it's just, so I went out there and, you know, just to, again, say high five and give them hugs and just, confirm them, affirm them, right? I get back in the chambers a short time ago. We're, we're voting on bills and I get a text message from Representative Tori Harris. No, I take that back. I went over to the chambers. Um, this is a series of events. After Justin leaves from my chamber, when I go back out to greet the protesters, I went into the House chambers. You know, you can go back and forth as legislators. And at this point, I see Representative Justin Jones, Justin Pearson huddled at Gloria Johnson's desk. She sits at the front of the, the floor and he's on Gloria Johnson's microphone talking to the speaker about why he got kicked out for his pen. He's like, you know, the, the, the rules aren't applying fairly. You cut off my mic like p other people wear their AR-15 pens. Why, why did I have to leave? And so this is they're they're doing their back and forth thing. I go back into my chambers and that's when I get the text message from Tori Harris saying, you need to get over here right now. So I dropped, I stopped, I went over there, and by that time, everyone's in recess. So it had the floor protest had happened. I wasn't over there. Justin didn't tell me they was doing it, but I didn't get no warning or nothing. So that it had already happened by the time I got over there and they were whispering about expulsion. They're like, they're about to expel him. So that's why they were in recess. And that's when I got on the phone and called uh, Delisha Porterfield, who's the minority caucus chair of the Metro Council because I'm like, if they're about to expel them, him, then they're going to have to replace him. And so I wanted to get ahead of it to see how we could like get him back up here. So anyway, that was, that's a really long story short, but you know, Justin Jones was an activist. I had met representative Justin Pearson a year prior to this, our paths crossed when we were organizing in West Tennessee in a small town called Mason. It's a predominantly uh, black town. It's small, it only has uh, over a little over a thousand residents population. And um, these are descendants of enslaved Africans that have just stayed in that area over time. Um, this is where Tent City happened. Uh, if you uh, learn to know about that in the history books uh, after the sanitary sanitation strikes that Dr. Martin Luther King was um, going down there and got assassinated. After that, there was a tent city that happened in Fayette County. So there, West Tennessee has a lot of history, which is why there's a lot of Black people that live in, West, in rural West Tennessee. And this was a town that was being targeted by a comptroller and trying to be taken over because we had just given a, a Ford the motor company over $844 million in corporate subsidies to build their plant there. So Mason sits next is the closest town where this Ford plant is going to go. And now I see the playbook. They're trying to take over this hugely black city so that they can take over their water source and take over their land and start developing on it. And it makes national news. And so I go down there 
And that's when I meet Justin Pearson, who gives me, he calls me. He's like, hey, sister, like heard about you in Nashville. And so we kind of do that whole activism thing. Like, what's up? Heard about you in Memphis. He's doing the Memphis against the uh, pipeline uh, coalition. He's trying to stop a pipeline in Memphis from going through a black, uh, predominantly black neighborhood. And he stops that. Um, so you can do your research on all that. But we're all doing our various like fights in Tennessee. And so that was the beauty of like coming together in the legislature this year, because it's like, wow, the people who've been on the ground fighting against the oppression and the white supremacy tactics are now on the inside. <laughs> so that was the beauty of all of us coming in as freshman legislators. And they didn't know how to take it. They didn't know how to take the pushback. Um, they being um, represent the GOP in power. They just didn't know how to like, they got shook by the disruption of now y'all can't kick us out. Y'all can't, y'all can't, you know, disrespect us in the way that you used to because now we equal. We got this senator title and this representative title in front of our names. We get all the rights and privileges that you do. So uh, it, it, it's been, I've been trying to figure out what ways that I can fight on the Senate side. And I've been doing my thing, but again, we have a retirement home. It's, it's boring over there. There ain't nobody paying attention. But I've been doing, if you look, I've been giving in the business over there too. <laughs> so... I love that you have the fight and it really reminds you of like in reconstruction for that five minutes where the African-Americans and the Pete enslaved could vote and got in the power, freaked out the white supremacist power structure. I'm glad you're there. Representative Johnson's been on the show. State Senator Heidi Campbell, who adores you, by the way, is a good friend of mine. And she's been on the show countless times and she's running for mayor. I hope she wins. We need women leaders, women who are conscious, kind, caring, empathetic leaders. Uh, hopefully Nashville will elect her and that could help. She wants to fight back against the encroachment with the airport and everything from naming streets after Donald Trump to other stupid stuff. But uh, at least there is a pocket of progress, progressive hope in the city of Nashville. Uh, I know you, I can hear in everything. We talk about it openly. We've had a private conversation when I Ran into you a little bit of great synchronicity. I was visiting Heidi, and who do I see in the hallway? And we had never met, and I knew it was you. I said, "Aren't you?" And you're like, "Oh my God!" It's a, but uh, where does this great connection to God come from? Have you always had it? Did it come later? Uh, it's the center of your life. Will you talk about that before we we let you go? Because I know you have a full day. The word synchronicity, I have recently come to learn that word. I never heard about it until I was describing my win to my therapist when I won my campaign. And I just couldn't put my finger on it. I was like, this felt like a crescendo to everything in my life. Like all, like all the things started to make sense. Why I went through sexual trauma, why I experienced poverty and domestic violence. And, uh, you know, like all the things, like why I met my husband when I did and graduating from Vanderbilt and seeing white privilege and like all the things in my life and how they lined up made sense in that moment. <laughs> like. And she was like, sounds like synchronicity. 
And I looked it up and it, you know, basically means um, how the universe reveals itself. And that to me is, I just felt so much gratitude to God because I'm like, God, you saw the plan before I, it was revealed to me. Like you knew all along what you were going, going through, <laughs> what you were making me go through and having to experience. And, but it was only in due time that you allowed it to come to pass and you ordered my steps. I, I was um, baptized when I was nine years old. So I accepted Christ when I was a little girl. But, you know, I've gone through my trials and tribulations and that has helped me develop a relationship with God and uh, to where I trusted God. When I asked for that healing, ever since then, I have been obedient to his word and to what he wanted me to do. This was not the path that I chose. But when he said, go start the Equity Alliance, when he put that, that oomph, I don't know what it is, but that oomph in me to like do it and follow through on it, even though I never had no idea how to be an organizer, what what that meant and how to, you know, like build a movement. It, it was God. God did that. I was just a vessel. And so when I tell you, <laughs> no one's going to believe me. When I, but when I tell you, ever since I have been on this path since Trayvon Martin's murder, no door. When I say no door that I have wanted to walk through has been shut down on me. <laughs> like when I, I God like opens the door because I've been so obedient and following what he's wanted me to do. So the Equity Alliance has been successful. When it came time for me to quit my job and do it full time, God provided for my family so that I wouldn't go without like allowing me to win this state senate seat was all part of his plan. I'm just walking through it. I, it was never my plan to ever run for office. Like I used to think, about, I used to think about politics and politicians in a negative way, but now I see it as again, it's the vessel for change and ministry. That is what it's about for me. This is this is my ministry through my life and me telling my story gives inspiration to other people that compels them to act and mobilize them into action. So that's the synchronicity that has always, that has stuck with me that I am walking in divine purpose. You've been listening to the What Matters Most podcast a 100% listener-supported program. If you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash whatmattersmost and join our family. So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light.